Dear congregation, I would ask you to please turn your very prayerful attention to that passage in 2 Kings chapter 6. We arrive this morning in the verse 8 of 2 Kings. Last Lord's Day, we considered verses 1 to the verse 7. And I remind you of the occasion here this morning. The nation Israel is in a very dark and desperate state. There is unbelief on every front, it seems. And the Lord has raised up for himself Elijah. And Elijah now has gone up to heaven, to glory. The chariots of fire have taken him up. And Elisha remains. Elijah is really a foreshadowing of John the Baptist. Elisha, his ministry very much pictures that of the Lord Jesus Christ. Acts of mercy, miracles of mercy and kindness shown to this very recalcitrant nation. And the Lord right now, I must remind you, in faithful covenant-keeping promise, there in Deuteronomy 28, is bringing woe upon woe upon wicked Israel because of its unbelief, because its departure from the living God, from turning from the laws of God and turning to idolatry in this land. Even the king of Israel is shown sign after sign of the power of Almighty God. And, and yet even this king is unbelieving. By and large, the people are unbelieving. There are, amongst even Israel, we know, as the Lord said to Elisha or Elijah, there are 7,000 that haven't bowed the knee to Baal. And during these days, the ministry of the prophet is going forth, and we see many signs and wonders even being shown not only to Israel, but to Syria. Syria, who now the Lord, as I said, in his covenant-keeping promise, is bringing woe upon woe upon the Israelites. Has God not said in his word that he shall bring the foreign nations against Israel if they depart from him? And God is doing this. If you notice in verse 8 of 2 Kings, chapter 6, Then the king of Syria warred against Israel, and took counsel with his servants, saying, In such and such a place shall be my camp. Now why is this happening? Well, because of God's promise. Israel were under what we call a bilateral covenant. If they did certain things, there would be blessing. If they failed to do it, God would bring woe. If they honored the Lord, he would bring blessing. But if not, he would bring curses. Not only would the land suffer from droughts and famines and all kinds of things, but wars. And do you remember just in the previous chapter, look at chapter 5, verse 1, how even the general of the Syrian army was prospering against Israel by God, by Almighty God who had brought the Israelites out of Egypt. 2 Kings 5.1 Now Naaman, captain of the host of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master, and honorable. 
because by him the Lord had given deliverance unto Syria. By the Lord. The Lord gave Naaman victory. It's tremendous, isn't it? One would have thought, as I've said before, in Israel, what would they have made of this? God was giving the Syrians victory over the Israelites. That's because of their sin. Now, what did God even do? He healed Naaman, the general of the Syrian army. We're told he was a leper. And he came down, didn't he, to see Elisha? There was a young damsel in the house that was taken captive during the marauding raids in Israel. And she was taken captive to live. And she cared for Naaman's wife. And that little damsel mentioned Elisha, the prophet. And eventually the king of Syria sends a letter to the king of Israel. So, and the king of Israel, he, what does he do? Well, he, he rends his clothes, doesn't he? Because he, he, he thinks that the king of Syria is now picking an argument with him that he might wage out all war against him. And what happens Naaman comes down with a few men and after a little while he is humbled, isn't he? And he goes and washes in the Jordan River and he comes out of the Jordan River and his leprous skin is like as a baby's flesh and he returns home a worshipper of the living God. Ben-Hadad was the king of Syria, probably still is now. And he wages war against the very God of the nation who healed his general. Can you believe it? Do you not see the hardness, my friends, of man's hearts? We have it in this world. God is so good to men every day. He causes his sun to shine on the just and his rain to fall on the just and the unjust. And yet how unthankful man is. How unthankful this king was for all that God had done. Well, nonetheless, at any rate, we read here how this war now begins. It's all-out war, and there's plans. And as we read in the narrative here, these, and we've got to think in chapter 5, they were just marauding raids upon the land of Israel. Now... There are very, uh, should we say, concentrated and strong efforts to try to completely subdue this nation and bring it to its knees. And despite all the mercy shown to Naaman, and it's interesting, we don't read of Naaman in this chapter at all, but we do read of the servants of the king. Perhaps Naaman, it's suggested by son, has been relegated to serve in some other area as a general. We don't know that, but that's quite possible because Naaman's name is not mentioned here in the Syrian army. We can't be sure of that, but that seems to be the case. Perhaps he's been deployed to serve somewhere else, involved in some other matters, because maybe the king might even be suspect. And indeed here, Naaman is not a suspect as to who the spy might be in the king of Syria's army. 
Because what happens every time, as we read in this chapter, the, the king of Syria deploys men to go and fight in a certain place, in a certain camp, that he discovers that the Israelites know exactly what the plan is. And Naaman doesn't come up as a suspect. Surely if Naaman were on the side here of the, the, or, or in, engaged directly on the battlefront for the king of Syria, his name would have come up. Verse 8, then the king of Syria warred against Israel and took counsel with his servants. You see, Naaman's not mentioned there, saying, in such and such a place shall be my camp. And the man of God, that is, Elisha, sent unto the king of Israel, saying, Beware that thou pass not in such a place, for thither the Syrians are come down. And the king of Israel sent to the place which the man of God told him, and warned him of, and saved himself there, not once nor twice. Therefore the heart of the king of Syria was sore troubled for this thing. He knew something was wrong. This continued to happen. He suspected there's some spy in the camp. Who is it? And he called his servants and said unto them, Will ye not show me which of us is for the king of Israel? And one of his servants said, None, my lord, O king, but Elisha, the prophet that is in Israel. How this servant knew this, we don't know. We're not given that information. None, my lord, O king, if, but Elisha, the prophet that is in Israel, telleth the king of Israel the words that thou speakest in thy chamber. Now this, alongside with all that the king of Syria knew before, how God had healed by the prophet Naaman, and now what is happening this military intelligence being revealed, even things that he, he speaks in his bedchamber, even in the king's private chambers, even communing either in his own heart with his servants, this should ascend shivers down the man's spine. It should have made him quake. It should have made him very afraid. But in fact, it makes him just the opposite, very bold and brazen. And he thinks, well, I can fix this. I'll just deal with Elisha. I'll just deal with Elisha. Well, is that the answer to the problem? Elisha was getting the intelligence from Almighty God. And this is what people fail to see, my friends. Almighty God knows everything. As we thought with the children this morning, not only is God omniscient, all-knowing, but he is all-present. The Lord Jesus said, the Son of God which is in heaven and also on earth. There in John 3, as he addressed John, uh, rather Nicodemus in the Gospel of John, God is spirit and God knows all things. And this is something that this king was failing to see, or he just didn't want to see it. He didn't want to recognize it. And this is man, dear friends. Now, equally as bad is the king of Israel, Jehoram. 
He's not a saved man, as we'll see. He's unregenerate. He's lost. And he himself, even right now, has been shown infallible proofs that God is to be feared. He has been shown the wonders and the signs. Remember how he rent his garments. Because in great fear. And yet, the Lord did heal Naaman. Naaman was healed. Of course, not by Elisha. That's why Elisha sent him away to the Jordan, proving and even showing to Jeroboam, or not Jeroboam, Jehoram, and to King Ben-Hadad that God was the one that was effecting these miracles, not him. He was shown infallible proofs as God was working through Elisha. So here we have it. Jehoram was receiving military intelligence of where the Syrians were, and uh, well, he didn't even. How did you, how do you know Elisha? God has told me. God is. You see, people can even come to the bare knowledge of the truth, but that is not salvation, is it? You can come to a bare knowledge of the facts that Jesus Christ is Lord. As I was saying to the children, you can have all these things in the head. But unless the heart is changed, you're not saved. Unless you're regenerated, you're lost. This was Jehoram. And he even calls Elisha master. He even has a certain respect for him, a certain honor. And my friends, let me say this. I've had people bow down in my front room, kneel down, and not honor God. And do terrible things. And even confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And dishonor him. Well, as time goes on, it comes to the point now where King Ben-Hadad knew for certain that this was not a coincidence. That the king of Israel knew all of his military plans. Knew all the military intelligence. So... The conclusion is there must be a traitor in the camp. Verse 11, therefore the heart of the king of Syria was sore troubled for this thing. Oh yes, sore troubled. And people can be. But this, friends, doesn't bring a man to the fear of God, does it? He's troubled at circumstances. So Ben-Hadad decides to take care of business. And he thinks, just by capturing Elisha, this will deal with the problem. Now, the plan is almost humorous, isn't it? Because wouldn't Elisha know that also? Elisha would know exactly that he is planning to do this. If God has told him of these things, will he not tell him of this plan, this military plan? Well, King Ben-Hadad sends a massive host of his army down and surrounds the city of Dothan, there where... Elisha is with his servant. And by the way, this is a young man here. It's not Gehazi who is now struck with leprosy because he took the money, didn't he, from Naaman. He took the, the gold and the change of garments and that should never have been done. Well, Ben-Hadad sends this vast host of troops to capture Elisha, thinking that he can outwit Elisha. 
But my friends, the God of Elisha is over all things. And what you see here, and by the way, the historical annals, you can read the historical annals of the Assyrians and the Syrians. They don't deny what actually took place here. That the army of King Ben-Hadad actually went into the town, into the great vast city of Samaria. By the way, Samaria is the capital of the ten tribes here in the north, also called Israel. Their annals don't deny this. It's on many of their inscriptions. Now he's thinking he can outwit Elisha and overcome him with power. Well, Elisha, his servant goes out early in the morning. That night, imagine, picture it in your mind's eye. They're just outside there, the city, and uh, he goes out of the tent early one morning. Look at verse 15. And when the servant of the man of God was risen early and gone forth, behold, a host encompassed compass the city, both with horses and chariots. And his servant said unto him, Alas, my master, how shall we do? And he answered, Fear not, for they that be with us are more than they that be with them. Now, what is it? Here's another miracle. As we look at these verses here, here's another miracle. This young man, he can't see what Elisha sees. What does Elisha see? As we will see, there's a vast host, even much more than that of the, 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 the king's army of Syria. A host of heaven, as it were. Chariots and horses of fire. And Elisha prays that this young man's eyes will be opened to see that which is there all along. Not as if they suddenly appeared. And so he prays. Look at verse 17. And Elisha prayed and said, Lord, I pray thee, open his eyes that he may see. Now I want to impress upon you this. Those were always there. Something we must never lose the picture of. Those horses and those chariots of God were always there. But the fact of the matter is this young man couldn't see it, but Elisha could see it. And we read, And the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw. And behold, a mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire round about Elisha. Now, can you imagine, had the Lord not have opened this young man's eyes, what a disaster this would have been. Because you would have had Elisha, who could see the vast host of horses and chariots, and yet he would have had a servant stricken with panic when they all come down. And, well, as you will see, the narrative, Elisha wouldn't be able to do what he did. He led this entire army into the city of Samaria, and he would not have been able to do that effectively without the Lord firstly opening the eyes of this 
man, and then blinding the eyes. As you notice, verse 18 proceeds, the army of the Syrians come down. They come down to attack. But the Lord, firstly, he has to open the eyes of the blind man. You see, if he is going to be an effective servant, the Lord has to open his eyes. And it's the same for anybody. Nobody can serve the kingdom of God unless his eyes have been opened spiritually. To see things, to see the unseen things of this world. We're reminded, aren't we, in Hebrews 11. Now faith is the substance of things hoped for. The evidence of things not seen. Peter says, we love him who we've not seen. I've never seen the Lord Jesus Christ. But I love him. How? Because I believe in him. I have faith in him. How can you love somebody you've not seen? My friends, that is the supernatural work of Almighty God. That a man should love one he has not seen. He believes the pages of Scripture. When God says it is so, it is so. And the sinner is brought to saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. To love and to trust the unseen God who is spirit and yet was manifest in the flesh. And the Christian has known and come to know that this is the only way possible that God could ever save a soul by living for him and then dying for him. It's the only way God could save me. By his son becoming incarnate, taking to himself bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh, coming under the very law of God and then dying in my place. Condemned he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood. That's my hope. And this young man was given eyes to see. And that is my prayer for many. You know, many, as in Ezekiel's day, just love the voice of the preacher. Sounds good, sounds eloquent, but they knew nothing of God. Souls are dead. You can know truth in your head, but it's not in the heart. This man, he was brought to experience tremendous things here in this passage. So faith, well, it's the substance of things hopeful, the evidence of things not seen. You see it in the life. There's real life. Now, quite naturally, we, we might tend to stand in awe, and we do, when we look at the army here in our mind's eye. We stand back and we, we, we look in awe at the presence of this vast host of chariots of fire and horses, this heavenly host, and we say, whoa, this is tremendous. But friends, we've got to see something more. We've got to see something more. God's power here to open the eyes of this blind man and to make him see what he couldn't see. That's a great power, isn't it? Because you see, by nature, let me say this, we are so blind. We're so blind to what is plainly obvious. Think of this world that God has made. It should be plainly obvious to every single individual in this world that there is a creator. And it is. It is so. 
But the Apostle Paul tells us, not only has God revealed it to them, but the Scriptures say that men holds down the truth in unrighteousness. Have you read it? Do you know where it is? Turn with me to Romans chapter 1, verse 18. We know there, Paul tells us of tremendous things. Why the wrath of God is come. Why it's come. Why God is angry with sinners every day. Do you know why God is angry with sinners every day? Because the heavens and the earth declare the glory of God. Yet man says there is no God. The fool is said in his heart there is no God. Look at verse 18 of Romans 1. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth and unrighteousness. The word hold there can mean suppress. They say there is no God. Why? Because they want their sin and they want to live to it. Now notice, who hold the truth and unrighteousness because, here's the reason, that which may be known of God is manifest in them. It's it's revealed in them. For God has showed it unto them. That's the creature. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world, the things that he has made, are clearly seen being understood by the things that are made. Even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because that, when they knew God, They glorified him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imagination, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools, and changed the glory of the incorruptible God, uncorruptible God, into an image made like corruptible man, and to birds, and four-footed beasts, and creeping things. The Indian will worship a cow walking across the road. And he'll say that's a god. Of course, there are many religions in India. There are many religions in this world. Man has reduced God to a four-footed creature, to idols, to things that are made with the hands. Man denies the creator God. He denies that God is over all things. The heavens and the earth, my friends, are screaming. There is a creator God. And yet man holds down the truth in unrighteousness. There's an unseen world. But there are things that are clearly evident that God is right now. And yet men reject this truth in unrighteousness. And then we read that God therefore gives them over. You worship a stick. See what your God does to you. It reduces you to an idiot. It reduces you to a fool. When the fool says there is no God, he says in the word of God, he says in his heart, not his head. The head and the created order, all the empirical evidence out there says there is a God. And if there is a God, he knows all things, my friend. He knows the things that you've done in the privacy of your bedroom this past week. The thoughts of your mind, as he knew. 
the thoughts and the plans of this King Ben-Hadad. He knows everything. There's nothing hidden from him. The God with whom we are told we have to do. There's nothing hidden from him. But you notice, God opens this man's eyes. The Lord was prayed to by Elisha, Lord, open his eyes. And that is our prayer for some of you. Lord will open your spiritual eyes. Here, I suppose, we can't see angels. But we believe the Bible says that they are ministering spirits to them who are the heirs of eternal life. They are there. What they do, I do not know. I just know that the Bible says they minister unto the saints. In what way, in what capacity, I do not know, but I believe. Because God has said it. Now, you notice, verse 18, the Syrian army comes down. Verse 18, and when they came down to him, Elisha prayed unto the Lord and said, Smite this people, I pray thee, with blindness. And now notice it. He smote them with blindness according to the word of Elisha. Now, Elisha didn't smite them, but the Lord did. And it's something we mustn't lose sight of. I know it's a very simple thing. It was the Lord. No power in Elisha. Elisha had to pray it. And it was effected. God did it. Now, the same word here for smite with blindness is the same word used in Genesis 19 and the verse 11. Remember when the angels went into the city of Sodom and it was such a wicked city, the Sodomites, the terrible immorality and sexual impurity of that city was, was awful. The men wanted to know these angels and wanted to do terrible things. Well, if you turn there to Genesis 19.11, the word there, for smite with blindness is the word sanver in the Hebrew. And it refers to a sudden blindness that these men were struck with. It says there in verse 11, And they smote the men that were at the door of the house with blindness, both small and great, so that they wearied themselves to find the door. That's the people, the sodomites of the city, that were outside Lot's door wanting to know the angels and then his daughters. But the angels struck them with a sudden blindness. And that is the same word that is used once again. And uh, it would be a sort of, and you see how they're staggering around the door. The sense is that they're not completely blind, but there is a, a confused state, utter disorientation. It's not as if they, they can't see absolutely, but it's all blurred. Surroundings become unfamiliar. Look at verse 19. And Elisha said unto them, This is not the way. Neither is this the city. Follow me, and I will bring you to the man whom ye seek. But he led them to Samaria. Now many here have accused Elisha of lying. But let me say, Elisha didn't lie. The man that they really after, and it could be conjectured this way, is really the king of Israel, because that's where he takes him. 
He takes him right into the heart of the city of Samaria, where King Ben-Hadad is. Uh, sorry, King Jehoram. Now, Elisha here, he does bring them into the city. He does bring him into the city of the king, King Jehoram. And let me say this, we are never given a license to lie. None of us. We are never called to lie or never given license to lie. But he does lead them, and he's not leading them even to their destruction. But this is going to humble the king of Israel as well as the king of Syria before the almighty God of heaven and earth with whom we all have to do. Just think of it, the king of Syria will have to live with the fact that his troops were led into the very city of Israel, Samaria, and surrounded and could have been slain, and actually they were sent away with bread and water. And that's a picture, really, showing God's mercy, isn't it? Now, again, coming back to Elisha here, we are never given license to lie. I'm sure you've heard of the, the story of a godly young lady during the days of the Covenanteers, where it was forbade that certain Protestants could meet for worship and uh, the preaching of God's word. And she was caught by some local authorities and asked, where are you going? And in those days, men would... God's people would meet in woods. And, uh, well, she turned around and she said, one of my kinsmen has died. One of my near kinsmen have died. And I hear that I'm left in his will. And I go to hear of my interest in that will. And she was not lying when you stop and think about it. Who is our near kinsman? The Lord Jesus Christ. And he has left all of his people in his will. And we come, do we not? We come to hear the truth of God's word. You've heard of Corrie Ten Boom, no doubt. And uh, her sister, Bessie, Betsy, shall I say, when the Nazis came in and they asked, Are you hiding anybody? She said, Well, they're under the table. She said this quite clearly. And the Nazis actually thought she was, she was mad. And they just went away. Thought she was either being mad or just being rude. And they just went on their way. See, my friends, she was an extraordinary and sincere young woman. She decided years before that she would never tell a lie. The scriptures say God cannot lie. And if God cannot lie, we should never lie. There are always ways and means. Now, this army, neither the king, deserved any truth. We're not obliged to give people truth. We can withhold it. That's not the same as lying, is it? But we are never given a license to lie as Christians. Never. May God help us to be wise. Young Betsy Ten Boom was a very godly young woman. And the Lord has brought her to our remembrance, just as that godly young woman 
who wouldn't lie where she was going to meet, meet with God's people. So should we never lie. Now, Elisha, you notice he leads this vast troop of people all the way to the city of Samaria and to Jehoram's palace. And we notice when their eyes are opened that they are suddenly surrounded. They see that they are suddenly surrounded by the king and his army. Now, there are several things in this, this miracle itself. What about the people of Samaria when they saw this troop walking into Samaria? That was a miracle in itself. That the people of Samaria didn't scream in panic. God must have subdued the people of Samaria so that he, he allowed them just to, to go in and then all of a sudden they're surrounded. You see, let me say this. My friends, we are headed to the day of destruction. And there's a day when every person in this world will be gathered before the great judgment seat of Almighty God. And just as here Elisha brought all of these enemies, God will one day bring in all the enemies, all that do not know him and love him, before his great and awesome presence, before the very judgment seat of Christ. But I want you to notice the wicked heart as we move on in the narrative of Jehoram. Having seen all of this, having seen this miracle, and even these, these men of Syria, these enemies subdued, and they, they don't even appear as enemies now, they're very placid, he still wants their blood. And this shows the heart of lost man. You notice, as they brought into the city, and their eyes are opened, and the king of Israel, verse 21, said unto Elisha, when he saw them, My father, shall I smite them? Shall I smite them? Can you see how he repeats the words twice? He's a bloodthirsty man. There's no mercy in him. They don't present themselves to be an enemy. Now the law of God was very clear. If the enemy surrendered, we have it in many passages in the Old Testament, we don't have time. There was a law. The ordinary way that God instituted was not to slay prisoners of war, but they would become slaves. But that's not what the king wants here. He was not interested in the law of God and the law of mercy that was to be shown to these foreign nations. He was a lost man. Because you see, the scriptures say, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall see mercy. He knew nothing of personal mercy. He knew nothing of forgiveness of sins himself. My friends, it's not like we earn mercy. But if we are under God's mercy, we have a merciful spirit. But he didn't have it. He didn't have it at all. He kept saying, shall I smite them? Shall I smite them? And he answered, thou shalt not smite them. Wouldest thou smite those whom thou hast taken captive with thy sword and with thy bow? You see, Elisha knew the law of God. But not this man. And it shows the darkness 
of the land at this time. And he says, rather, yea, set bread and water before them, that they may eat and drink and go to their master. Well, the king does it. Because he's commanded to. It's not his desire, and he prepared a great provision for them. And when they had eaten and drunk, he sent them away, and they went to their master. So the bands of Syria came no more into the land of Israel. So what is interesting here is that this is not the end of the story. Because if you read in the very next verse, look at verse 24. And it came to pass after this that Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, gathered all his hosts and went up and besieged Samaria. He didn't stop. There was a period of time when he abated, when he stopped. And this is just yet again a reminder of the hardness of man's heart. Can you not see it? Though kindness is shown, they sent away with bread and water. I mean, what other nation would have done this? But my friends, here in again is the doctrine of the total depravity of man laid before us once again. These mercenary raids, they begin again. And the main theme of this, I suppose what we could write over this whole section here, is practical atheism. The great Puritan preacher Stephen Charnock is probably most well known for his works, The Existence and Attributes of God. And he deals with the subject of practical atheism. And we see it. We see it in the life of King Ben-Hadad. He was shown so much evidence of God. So was Jehoram. So were the people of Israel. But their hearts didn't change. Stephen Charnock said, Men may have atheistic hearts without atheistic heads. Men may have atheistic hearts without atheistic heads. Look at this king of Israel. So much evidence was given to him, but he had an atheistic heart. Look at the king of Syria. Same with him. Look at what God did to Naaman. Look how again the God of mercy sent away all of his troops, yet he continues to rebel. That's the human heart, my friend. Practical atheism is not an outright denial of God. It is a disregard for God. You can be here tonight, this morning. You can say, I don't deny God. Yeah, but you disregard him. You don't honor him. You don't say he's Lord of my life. You don't say I must submit to him. You don't submit to him. He's in your head, but he's not in your heart, my friends. If God has shown you mercy in Christ Jesus, will you not render to him? The psalmist says in Psalm 116, What shall I render to God for all his mercies unto me? But man's heart says no. No. Yes, God is, but I'll not give him. I'll not give him honor. You see, there's not a a single atheist in the world, let me say this, 
The Bible tells us that because God, it says, has shown himself to them. And yet men deny the God of the Bible. That's the problem. The problem with so many that even come along to church is they want a different Lord than the one I preach. They want one that you can serve him how you like. Give him the scraps of your life. My friend, you don't give God the scraps of your life. Neither should I. He wants the best. He says, my son, give me thine heart. And when God says something, do it. Do it. Do it from the heart. Something else, behold, as we seek to draw to a close the ingratitude of man. See Ben-Hadad. See even Jehoram. When trouble starts again, well, he's so slow to respond. Ben-Hadad's ingratitude, Jehoram's ingratitude, the nation's ingratitude. Then there is that form of practical atheism from presumption. Think of this king. He presumes he can outwit God. He can outwit Elisha. Would you send a military? Well, doesn't he know all your military plans? You try another plan. And my friend, God knows every sin of our heart, doesn't he? We can't outwit God. James says, when he speaks about people in some ways, some ways people speak, he says, go now ye that say today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a city. We'll continue there for a year, buy, sell, get gain. He says, whereas you don't even know what will be on the morrow. He says, what is your life? It's even a vapor. He says, you talk in such a way, he says, all such speech is evil. God has determined your days as well as my days. And that ought to humble us. When you say, I'm going to do this tomorrow, and you don't even know what tomorrow is going to bring, it doesn't mean to say we don't plan. Of course we plan. But as Christians, we say, the Lord willing. That's how we speak as Christians, if the Lord will. Because we don't know how long we've got. And the fact that we don't know how long we've got we better serve him as best as we can here on earth. Time is short, isn't it? Eternity is forever. Many people live for tomorrow, but tomorrow may never come. It's evil thinking. Man proposes, but it is God who disposes, my dear friends. At the heart of it, we could say, there's no fear of God. Look at these men. Look at King Ben-Hadad. There's no fear of God. When he heard that all these plans had been revealed, he should have feared. He should have shaped, but he didn't. And my friend, let me say this. The Lord Jesus said, there is nothing covered that shall not be revealed. 
neither hid, that shall not be known. Therefore, whatsoever you have spoken in darkness shall be heard in the light. So what do we do? Repent. My question is this. What kind of God do you serve? What kind of God do I serve? There's only one God. He's the omniscient, all-knowing, all-powerful God who sent his Son to die for his people. And his people will confess their sins. And they will find mercy. The scriptures say, Whosoever confesseth their sins and forsaketh their sins shall find mercy. What we find here with this king, even Jehoram, is what we call impious piety. At the end of Elisha's life, he comes again and he cries, My father, my father. But he never knew anything of the prophet really. He just had a very light attachment to the prophet and to the things of God. Never repented. Never called his nation to repent. Neither did he repent. Samaria come back and attack. And God overthrows again. Now, last, I must close with this. The servant of Elisha. The faith of God's elect. They trust God. Think of it. This is so crucial. When that army came down upon Elisha and the servant, what did he do? He prayed. He didn't panic, did he? Lord, open his eyes. And that's true, let me say, for every Christian, he prays. And we believe God can open up the eyes of them who don't see. That's why we pray. Lord, my mother's not saved. My father's not saved. My brother's not saved. Lord, it seems the world is against me. But look at what the servant says. Look at what Elisha says to the servant. They that are against us. What does he say? And those that are for us. He says, fear not. For they that be with us are more than they that be with them. Child of God, you will face difficulties in this life like Elisha. But you have to believe in the unseen God that he watches over his people. That he said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail. He will not save everyone, but he will save some and probably those who you least expect to save. That's often the case in the Bible, isn't it? Look at Manasseh. Well, we don't have that for sure, but it seems that that man was a changed man. Look at Nebuchadnezzar. We don't know if those, they were definitely changed, whether they're saved. They were brought to humility. Nebuchadnezzar was brought to bow down and to confess the Lord. That there is none like him. A man who resisted the children. Daniel and his fellow servants. God has called us to live 
in light. That he is all-powerful, my friends. And he is able to subdue anything. Has he not said, I am the Lord. Is there anything too hard for me? He says, I am the God of all flesh. Is there anything too hard for me? The Lord Jesus said to his disciples, Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Well, look at the king here. Look at the enemies, all brought into subjection to God's will. The church, my friends, if we are in Christ, we are more than conquerors through Christ who loved us. And we pray that the Lord himself will subdue men, that he will open up blind eyes and bring them to love him and to serve him. These tremendous words, those that are with us are more than those that are against us. You know, the devil is against every child of God. But we're reminded, he that is in you is stronger than he that is in the world. You will face many trials as a Christian, but fear not. God is almighty. He is mighty to save. He sent his son into the world, my friends, not only to save us from the condemning power of the law, but to save us from our sins, the power of sin in our lives. You will overcome if you're a child of God. And you will be as Moses, who by faith forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. Moses saw by faith the invisible God. We do, through the pages of Scripture, see Christ, that we are more than conquerors through him. My friends, I was reading just something this morning and I close with this. Mr. Spurgeon said this, and it really struck my heart. You know, the Roman Catholics teach about purgatory. And here's something I'd never thought about before. But Mr. Spurgeon said, and he referred to the man on the cross. He said, that man, when the thief died on the cross, that had just believed and never done a single good work. But where did he go? He ought to have gone to purgatory by rights if anybody ever did. But instead, the Savior said to him today, thou shalt be with me in paradise. You see, the scriptures always confound the fool, don't they? But they make wise the simple, the simple the humble that believed by faith in the Son of God. That man believed. He didn't need to go to purgatory because Jesus Christ died for him. Amen.